future gazing publication, The World Ahead by The Economist, has brought together experts from around the world to reveal what lies ahead in more than 90 countries and in 24 languages to an international audience of more than 2.8 million people. During this era that feels unpredictable and unprecedented, their insights are essential reading for individuals, professionals, and policymakers alike. The Council has had a long-standing relationship with The Economist, where we have been able to bring expert-level analysis of ex existential issues straight to you. We are thrilled to bring the program back today for an especially interesting look into the new year, following one of so uh, much uncertainty and change. What truly lies ahead in 2024? Good morning and welcome. Thank you for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program today features Tom Standage, Deputy Editor of The Economist, in conversation with our Council's President Emeritus, Jim Falk. If you haven't yet, I highly recommend that you subscribe to The Economist and keep up to date with The World Ahead. I'd like to thank Global Santa Fe for partnering with us on this webinar. We appreciate the ability to be able to work together virtually. And then also I'd like to thank our promotional partners, our umbrella organization in Washington, D.C., the World Affairs Councils of America, and also the Phoenix Committee on International Relations. Finally, special thanks to our institutional partners, AT&T, Dallas Baptist University, Dallas College, Harwood International, Haynes & Boone, Lockheed Martin, NEC Corporation of America, PNC Bank, and Sidley Austin. And if you're not a member of the council yet, please join our engaged citizens. You can check out all of our membership options and events on our brand new website at dfwworld.org. And lastly, I just want to say it is time for our annual fund. It's that time of year, and uh, this year's theme is From Division to Dialogues, Supporting Civil Discourse. We provide a, fo a forum here at the Council that uh, goes beyond misinformation, disinformation, clears that up, goes beyond the headlines, and we uh, provide that unbiased platform. We want you to come and engage with that. Help us uh, continue to do that. So please check out our website for the annual fund and we'd love your support. Thank you very much. And uh, last, I'm going to turn it over to our moderator for today's program. Like I mentioned, Jim Falk. Uh, he is the President Emeritus of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and he retired in March of 2021 after serving as president since 2001. Now residing in Santa Fe, he is a member of the board of, the, of Global Santa Fe, where he chairs the program committee. And with that, I will hand it over to my friend, Jim. Jim, thank you so much for being with us, and Tom, you as well. Happy holidays to all. Thank you so much, Liz. It's great to always have the chance to work with the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, of course. Um, and it's, I think, Tom, this is the, the fifth year that we've done this, and I uh, really appreciate you taking time to talk with members from across the country about the world ahead. As Liz mentioned, Tom is the deputy editor of The Economist and editor of the year ahead, and he studied engineering and uh, uh, computing at Oxford University. He joined what they call the newspaper in 1998 as its science correspondent. Later positions included technology editor, business editor, and digital editor. 
and is the author of seven history books, including one of my favorites, which is somewhere back here, History of the World in Six Glasses. He wrote that in 2005. And to give you a bit of the spirit of the book, pun intended, he wrote, rum was the liquid embodiment of both the triumph and the oppression of the first era of globalization. And lastly, but very important, he's also known at The Economist as the drummer on The Economist Band. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here again. Thanks for inviting me. So I think what we'll do is sort of set the stage because I think people always find it interesting about how you go about producing, publishing The World Ahead. Then we'll turn it over to you for your great presentation on trends, et cetera. And then we'll open it up for, for Q&A. So this seems like such a hard project, especially as we were talking about it through email a few weeks ago, there always seems to be a major event happening in October, which strikes me as that would be when you're getting ready to publish the publish the special edition. Yes, we actually start the process in May. Um, and we sort of, at that point, you know, we can see some of the things that are coming in the following year. Um, but a lot of what we write down is sort of placeholders or just guessing. And then as we get closer to September, which is when I start expecting people to deliver articles, some of them write the article they expected and others say, well, actually, the thing we really need to write about is whatever. Um, so copy starts coming in in September. And then uh, essentially we have to assemble a kind of plausible first draft of it by about the middle of October. Um, and then after that, we are just essentially running to stand still, updating it until it goes to press. Uh, and, and you know, sometimes we predict things and they, they literally happen during October and then we can't run that piece because we were expecting it, you know, the following year. So, um, so yes, it is a it is a, a weird process. It does take quite a long time. Um, this is an interesting year, uh, 2024, because um, there are certain things you can usually predict in advance. There are, there, are, there are certain categories of things that are most easily predictable in advance. Um, elections, because they you know, very often have a very predictable timetable, obviously in the US, but, uh, but in other countries too. Um, uh, anything that's happening in space, the laws of celestial mechanics are extremely predictable. So, you know, eclipses, when space probes will get to certain planets, those sorts of things. As long as the space probe has got off the ground successfully, uh, you could be pretty sure. So, so that's a that's a good one. And then big sporting events, and of course in twenty twenty four we've got the Olympics. So, um, so there are sort of on on diary stories, as as we journalists call them, uh, that you can see coming. But of course the big the big unpredictable stories are the big you know political and and conflict and and uh, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, some bits of it are easier to predict and put together than others. So one of the distinguishing characteristics of The Economist is the byline is not there in the weekly edition, but we do get to see some of the personality of the folks in, in, in the annual. Yes, it's the same group of people um, from the weekly who are writing it, but historically the annual has always had bylines. Um, this is a bit of a historical anomaly. I think it's because when the annual was launched about uh, 38 years ago, I think it was, um, it mostly wasn't written by the journalists from the weekly. There were a few of them involved, but uh, but it was actually, you know, all sorts of other people and external guests. And the um, the world ahead has continued to have a tradition of external guests um, writing for us. And we've got some very distinguished guests this year, as we have had in in previous years. Um, so, yes, it is a, it is a slight um, uh, 
you know, pulling back of the curtain and uh, you get to see who who some of those authors are. Um, but, you know, to be fair, I mean, our anonymity has frayed around the edges quite a bit in the digital era. When we do things like podcasting and videos, you can see who we are. Uh, you can see who we are on social media and so on. I think the, the main, uh, the, the weekly newspaper itself um, will always be anonymous, I think. Um, there's a couple of very rare exceptions where you get a byline in there. Um, essentially, if you write a special report uh, in the middle of the paper, uh, then then traditionally you get a byline there. And um, by tradition, the editor, when retiring, writes a valedictory editorial uh, where that's also bylined as the as the editor signs off. Um, but those, you know, those are very, very uh, that's well, that only happens about every decade. So that's uh, that's quite rare. So, yes, I think the although you can look at the sort of trajectory and say, well, you seem to be less anonymous than you were. I think that's true. But I think that the core anonymity of the core weekly product um, is sacrosanct and, and will remain. So take us backstage, because one of the things that I enjoy so much is the guest columnists that you invite to appear in this issue. And there's this one by invitation, Five Cold War Lessons by Niall Ferguson and Secretary Condoleezza Rice. How did that come about? Um, well, actually, they'd written a piece for us. Um, so we have a slot on our website called By Invitation, and they had written a, um, a version of this piece for that. And I wanted something on the new Cold War. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I basically said, can we can we run that in print um, because the, or run it in, I mean, we have a, we have a print version, uh, but it also runs as part of the world ahead. So that was one where um, they'd actually already uh, done that piece um, for our, for our website. And we, we sort of took it and took it into the annual. Others were pieces where we invited the, the writers in question. So we have uh, Dr. Jaishankar, the, um, the foreign minister, the secretary of state, as you would say, I think of, um, of India, um, giving us his view on India's place in this much more multipolar world that, that we see now. Um, and, you know, he has ha said some quite pointed things in the, in the past couple of years about, uh, you know, Western hypocrisy and, uh, and this sort of thing. Um, I was expecting him to be a bit spikier, actually, in that, in that piece. Um, mm -hmm. Instead, he, he talked about, uh, you know, the, the accomplishments of India and sort of India's growing um, influence, which I, you know, which is all absolutely undeniable. Um, but I was, and he, there's a couple of swipes at, you know, the unfairness of the, of globalization and, and ensuring that, um, you know, that the views of, uh, uh, you know, more than just the usual Western powers are taken into account. Um, but it was great, you know, we wanted, we, we very much wanted, uh, you know, and he's a very good representative of, you know, the voice of the global South, um, sure. sort of saying saying hang on a sec you know um uh, we're our, our views should be should be um given uh greater emphasis than they're than they're currently getting in many forums you know places like the g7 and so on well even foreign it. ministers sometimes have to play it safe my last question before i turn it over to you is tom i could tell you i was a little disappointed when i first started reading this because some of the sections that i was accustomed to seeing and keeping on my desk over the year were not there and then I realized that this was included in a weekly edition, and I need to go to the airport, as you might say, to go pick up the standalone. The standalone tell, tell us yes. about how you made that so, decision and, yeah, and what so can the, we as subscribers uh, do? Yeah, so uh, we are distributing the, uh, the print version of The World Ahead slightly differently this year. So what American subscribers have been used to is that they would receive the World Ahead um, usually sometime in December as the as the sort of 52nd copy of the year, because we do a double issue in, um, uh, in, uh, over Christmas. And um, we, we also started sending print copies to subscribers in other countries too, in Britain, for example. 
And we decided that uh, it would be more efficient to include the world ahead into the weekly um, in the middle of November uh, for print subscribers everywhere in the world, rather than just um, giving some subscribers in, in some countries this uh, this extra uh, benefit. So the good thing about it is that more people get, um, anyone who gets a print edition of The Economist gets the world ahead inside it. Uh, they also get it earlier. They get it the week before Thanksgiving, which gives them some more time to read it instead of getting it sometime in December. Um, the drawback, if you are one of the people who used to get a standalone edition, is you don't get the standalone edition. And because the world ahead is bound into the weekly, there's a limit to how many pages we could include. Um, because the staples inside the weekly, I mean, this basically, this is the thickest copy of The Economist since October 2000, the height of the dot-com boom, when we had a massive amount of advertising from, you know, dot-com firms. Um, there's basically a hard limit of 196 pages on the size of The Economist, and that meant there was a hard limit of um, of 90 pages on the size of the uh, of the World Ahead supplement of editorial pages. So the bits we didn't include are the countries and the industries pages. And those are the sort of reference pages in the middle, 15 pages there. Um, and they are available in the standalone edition. The industries stuff is available on our app and online. Um, but the countries, the 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 country's pages, um, we haven't found a, a good way of presenting that in digital form. So um, so basically anyone who asks, I'll send them a PDF of that. Uh, but if you do want that reference um, version of the world ahead with those extra pages in the middle, then yes, um, it is available on newsstands and, and at airports. Okay, so, you've sold so, me. <laughs> so, you've got some, so basically you've got some winners and some losers. So I, I right. like to think that we've got more winners than losers, but I, I feel your pain and I'll happily send you the PDF of the bits that aren't there in that, um, in that band in version. Let's turn it over to you to hear your presentation. Okay, cool. Thanks very much. Um, okay, well, uh, yes, I've been editing The World Ahead for, this is the fourth year I've been the editor, and previously I was the deputy editor for a while. And you can see some of the, um, uh, you can, I hope you can see, yes, you can see some of the uh, the, the past covers that we've, uh, that we've had here. Um, and as we've mentioned, this is written by the journalists of The Economist, um, assisted by our colleagues at the EIU, which is the B2B arm of, of The Economist that does the countries and the industry's forecasts, and also our guest writers, and also the super forecasters at Good Judgment, who are the world's best geopolitical forecasters, and they've done a handful of forecasts for us too. So I put all of that together, and um, I write an editor's letter that appears at the front, and that essentially tries to find the common themes that run all the way through the edition and pull out the 10 biggest points. So I'm essentially going to give you the, the live version of that letter right now. And um, so this, let's jump in with number one. 2020 is an unusual year because um, I said that elections are, are predictable. Uh, we could see that not only were we going to have a lot of elections in 2024, we could see that it was going to be potentially the biggest year for elections in history. So we went and did all the number crunching and we spent months doing this, figuring out how many elections were happening, what population they are. And we realised that 2024 is the first year in human history where more than half of humanity will be living in a country that is holding a national election during the year. This has never happened before. If you add up all the elections, it's about 75, we think. Um, and you add up the population of all those countries, you get to 4.2 billion. And the population of the Earth is about 8.1 billion. So it's more than half. Um, and we think this will put a spotlight on the on the state of global democracy, because um, although that's a lot of democracy, a lot of well, it's a lot of voting, that's not the same as a lot of democracy. There's more to democracy than voting. And it's a lot of quantity of elections, but it's the quality is um, slightly different. So at the um, Economist Intelligence Unit, they run something called the uh, the Democracy Index. And essentially, they give every democracy in the world a score 
out of 10, um, and they rank it on various things. And uh, a full democracy, which scores um, more than eight, you can see on the right-hand side of this, of this chart, Britain is an example of that. Germany is an example of that. Um, Germany hasn't hasn't got uh, it, it, Germany's having the EU elections next year, so they're, they're, uh, the EU is electing uh, a new uh, EU European Parliament. So um, that's why Germany has a national election next year. In Britain, we're um, going to have a, a general election. We'll probably get a different government, a different prime minister. Anyway, you can see they are the darkest colours on the far right there. The US and India count as flawed democracies because they score less than eight. They score between seven and eight. And there are various um, things that uh, flawed democracies lose marks on. Uh, India loses marks because its press isn't terribly free and the um, opposition is getting uh, legal harassment and that sort of thing. The US loses marks because um, essentially a lot of the mechanism, a lot of trust is lost in democracy. A lot of the, the, the sort of basic democratic mechanisms um, seem not to be working. There's sort of constant gridlock in uh, in Congress and repeated concerns that, you know, the government's not going to um, pass a, a budget and, and agree to pay its bills. And then these sort of crises seem to be happening uh, more and more often. But um, if you look here on this chart, you can see that the, uh, uh, the biggest blobs are India, the United States and Indonesia, which are the first, second and third biggest democracies in the world, all of which have elections um, next year. And you can see Ind Indonesia is also a flawed democracy. And then as you go down towards the left hand side of the chart, you can see um, places that essentially have sham democracies, um, places like Russia. Uh, Russia is going to have a, a presidential election next year. And I can tell you already who's going to win. It's going to be Vladimir Putin. Um, and what's supposed to be happening with democracy is, you know, democracy is supposed to be a process whereby the voters can choose their leaders and they can get rid of their leaders if they don't like them. And that's not an option in Russia. Um, the election will be rigged and there will not be a, a, a real choice. Uh, whereas at the other end of the scale in Britain, we will actually probably chuck out the government that we've got now. Um, so there's a lot of voting, but that's not the same as a lot of democracy. And I think the elections that people are going to be looking at most closely next year, there's two, um, one at the beginning of the year, and one at the end. Um, the first one at the beginning of the year is in Taiwan. And um, the election in Taiwan will really sort of set the tone for relations with China. Uh, the choice will be between um, William Lai, a much more uh, sort of independence leaning candidate, and then two much more China friendly candidates. At the moment, it looks like William Lai will, will probably win, but we'll see. And that will really set the tone for relations across the Taiwan Strait, but also uh, between the US and China as well. But the other election, of course, that everybody will be watching very closely next year will be the US election. Um, voters and the courts will give their verdict on Donald Trump. And we think he has a one in three, probably slightly better than one in three chance of winning. If the election was held tomorrow, he would probably win. Um, and... This is going to be like U.S. elections tend to be now, uh, a very close run thing. Um, very often there are coin toss. Uh, you really it really could go either way. Um, in, the, in the last election in 2020, it was uh, really 40,000 votes in a handful of swing states. If, it, if they'd been in the other column, the outcome would have been different. So um, it's going to be very, very close, uh, whatever happens. And it's going to come down to, as I say, a handful of swing states. But the consequences are going to be global, because if Donald Trump comes back, um, that will have all sorts of impact on uh, on you know the fight against climate change, on support for Ukraine, on uh, what happens with immigration. He's talking about you know deporting millions of people, and that you know even if he if he tries to do that, it doesn't succeed. But even even tries, that will be a green light to uh, people who want to pursue similar policies around the world. 
Um, so really, the, the impact would be absolutely enormous. And um, there's a big sort of shadow cast over 2024, because obviously a Trump victory, he wouldn't be inaugurated until early 25. So it's really outside the scope of um, what's happening next year, which is what we're, what we're trying to think of. But it really is inescapable. I mean, you know, time and time again, uh, one of the things that comes up in, in it doesn't matter what you're writing about, if you're writing about US-China relations or, or Ukraine or or immigration or whatever, then they're sort of, but you know, but all of all bets are off if Trump comes back. Uh, is the is the is the sort of recurring um, motif. The immediate focus right now, and I think at the um, going into twenty twenty four, is what all this means for Ukraine. So Republicans um, seem to be unwilling to uh, support any more aid to Ukraine, and um, that means Europe is going to have to step up. If you look at the um, cumulative military and financial aid to Ukraine so far, and you add up the contribution from the EU countries and Britain, Norway and Switzerland, that now exceeds the contributions from the US. So in some ways, Europe has stepped up already. However, the military aid has come at the expense of Europe running down its own stockpiles of weapons. And uh, the financial aid um, is there, but it's not really uh, on its own. It's not enough to plug the gap, the hole in Ukraine's economy as a result of the uh, the war it's fighting. So um, the EU really does need to signal, uh, the European uh, powers generally need to signal that they are prepared to back Ukraine for a long period um, and that they are in this for the long haul. It's very clear that Vladimir Putin is in this for the long haul. He's now got something like six or seven percent of uh, Russian GDP going into um, the war effort. And um, the, if you look at things like artillery shell production, Russia is now producing more artillery shells than the whole of NATO put together. So, um, so NATO generally, but, um, but Europe in particular, needs an industrial mobilization to step up and support Ukraine. And this is the right thing to do, going back to the point about democracies. Um, those of us that live in, in full democracies, like I do in Britain and like most of the EU countries, Hungary does not count as a full democracy, it counts as a flawed democracy. But those of us who live in full democracy should not take it for granted um, just because there hasn't been a, you know, a World War II style war in Europe uh, for a long time doesn't mean it's not possible. And uh, so we need to step up and defend democracy when it, when, it, when it comes under threat. And I think America should be doing it too. I, can't, I don't understand the logic of the, um, the Republican objections to this. This is, if, if you just look at this from a sort of completely mercenary, um, you know, accounting point of view, um, this is an amazing deal for America because the aid to Ukraine, a lot of it goes to American arms manufacturers to make more weapons to send to Ukraine. Um, and even when it doesn't, this is a way for the US to essentially attrit one of its leading geopolitical rivals without having to put any American troops on the ground. Um, it, so this is a great deal and um, uh, America should be helping Ukraine as well. But if it's not going to, then Europe needs to step up. The other conflict, of course, that's very much on everyone's minds at the moment is what's happening in Gaza. Hamas's attack in October and Israel's subsequent retaliation against Gaza have upended the region and destroyed the idea that the Palestinians' plight could be ignored. So since 2020, we had the Abraham Accords and we had you know, several Arab states normalizing relations with Israel, primarily for economic reasons, but also to provide a counter to a common enemy of Iran. And um, it looks as though um, the, one of the aims, one of the main aims of the uh, Hamas attacks for both Hamas and for Iran was to derail that Abraham Accords process. 
um, particularly because Saudi Arabia looked like it was um, interested in coming on board. So we'll see whether that has succeeded in 2024. We'll see what happens to that process. But I think the other big question for 2024 is what happens when the Israeli offensive ends? Because there's a good chance that this will lead to new leadership, both in Gaza, but also in Israel itself. And paradoxically, that could reopen the door to the uh, to getting peace process, the peace process restarted. Um, Ursula von der Leyen said, uh, the president of the um, of the EU said said last week, um, uh, you know, the 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 probability of a two state solution is higher than it has been in years. Now, that's, a, you know, the bar is very low there because the, the two state solution has been assumed to be dead for many years. But people are talking about the Palestinians plight and they're talking about restarting the peace process in ways that they haven't done for a very long time. And American support for Israel does seem to be contingent on getting those wheels turning again. So paradoxically, the terrible violence that we're seeing now could open up a very, very narrow path um, to a long term solution. But it's not just conflict in Ukraine and in Gaza. Uh, there's conflict uh, flaring up all over the place. Uh, across the Sahel, for example, you can now walk from the Atlantic to the Red Sea, a distance of about 6,000 kilometres, just passing through African countries that have had a coup since 2020. And there are increasingly zones of impunity around the world, in parts of the Middle East, in failed states where Iran's proxies are thriving. Uh, if you look in the, in the Caucasus, in, in Russia's backyards, we just had this brief war between Azerbaijan and Armenia, and Russia seemed powerless to, uh, to defend Armenia, supposedly its ally. Um, so there are many parts of the world, really, where major powers and global institutions seem to have no influence at all. Um, and essentially, we're looking at a much more disordered world and a, a much more multipolar world. America's unipolar moment since the fall of the Soviet Union, um, where you know it was the only superpower, has definitively come to an end. And we have um, an awful lot more uh, large powers uh, coming to the fore and uh, a much more multipolar world as an example, as, as a consequence. And uh, so America has gone from being the only superpower to being the overstretched superpower. And of course, what everyone's worried about, particularly, is that um, might China think, well, now might be a good time to make a move on Taiwan because America is distracted. And uh, there is a, a theory called the um, the window of vulnerability theory among among China watchers that, um, that you know, if, if China is going to do this, the late 2020s might be the best time to do it because America's investment in beefing up its military presence in the Indo-Pacific will really only bear fruit in the in the 2030s. And so, you know, now might be might be good to uh, to make a move sooner rather than later. However, I don't think that's going to happen in 2024. Um, but it is a reminder that wars can be cold as well as hot. And we are now looking at a cold war between China and a Western uh, American-led Western bloc, and this this Cold War framing was something that we were very reluctant to embrace at the Economist, just because it's very different from the Cold War between the West and the Soviet Union. In that original Cold War, there wasn't any trade to speak of, no economic linkage really between the two sides, and that's not the case at all with China. There is obviously, you know, an enormous amount of economic linkage uh, in both directions. And China is an important end market for some Western companies uh, like Apple, for example. But it's also an extremely important uh, manufacturing hub, again, for Apple. Um, and so that means that 
it's very, very, it's an odd setup. It's very, very different because um, the two sides in this Cold War are geopolitical rivals, but they're economically actually very tightly bound together. And so what we've what we've seen is that technology has emerged as a central front in this new Cold War. And we've seen America putting restrictions on China's access to advanced technologies, particularly in chip making and the kind of chips that you need to uh, to train big AI systems. And we're going to see more tension over that um, in the coming year. And the other thing that we're seeing is Western companies try to reduce and de-risk their supply chains and reduce their dependency on China. This is very easily said, very, very hard to do. Um, because even if you move manufacturing to India or Vietnam, which are both benefiting from uh, people moving moving production of things away from China, in many cases, they still rely on components or raw materials that are produced in China. And to have a completely de-Chinified supply chain is extremely difficult and will take years. Um, and you know, it may take even longer than that. It may not be possible um, for some things. One of the reasons it's so difficult is if you look at things like raw materials, um, uh, like lithium, an enormous amount of lithium is processed in China. Uh, and so that lithium that then goes into electric cars and, and smartphones and all the rest of it. Um, if you if you want to have a, um, a a supply chain that doesn't depend on China, you don't just need to get your own supply of lithium. And there's there's lithium all over the place. Um, but you also need uh, to be able to process that lithium and have your battery factories and all the rest of it uh, completely independent of China. And that's very difficult to do. But that brings us to the next trend, which is this idea that these materials that we need for the green energy transition, they are a different set of resources um, to the uh, the fossil fuels um, that we were you know, used to um, depending on. And uh, and they're also in different places. So this is drawing, redrawing the energy map, the energy resources map. Um, and so, you know, we're used to thinking that uh, oil and gas, well, you find a lot of that in the Middle East. And so um, that has given the Middle East a great deal of prominence. Uh, which you know, 50 years since the the the, the oil shock and, and so forth. But now we're thinking about a different set of resources, things like lithium, nickel, copper, and they're in a different set of countries. And a lot of those countries are countries in the global south that are not on one side or the other of this new Cold War. Um, and so this is one of the many factors, um, you know, these middle powers, uh, sometimes called the global middle ground, um, they have much more influence than they used to in this multipolar world where we suddenly want a different set of resources. And um, some of the countries are, are quite unexpected. So, uh, so Indonesia and New Caledonia, for example, are big suppliers of nickel. I think most people are aware that Chile is a big supplier of lithium, but there are quite a few other countries that you, you, know, you don't think of when you think of lithium. Um, so, for example, Zimbabwe is a large producer of lithium. Iran seems to have just found a big deposit. And, and there also seems to have just been a big discovery of a lithium deposit in the continental United States, which is very interesting if true. Um, so it's not just that the resources are in different places and the map has changed for that reason. It's that the map itself is also in flux right now because new discoveries are being made all the time. Uh, one of the things we may see in 2024 is uh, the first attempts at mining the seabed where you can get uh, valuable materials like manganese. So again, that would be a, a, a new phenomenon. And then another thing that complicates all of this is that technology itself is advancing. So it may be that we can make we, we know how to make car batteries without cobalt. 
Um, but it may be that it's it's possible to make quite good batteries without lithium. It may be that sodium batteries will come to the fore in the next few years. And if that happened, then, well, sodium is much more abundant than, um, than lithium. So I think uh, we will become increasingly aware in 2024 of the way that this map is shifting and what the implications are for supply chains, for global trade and for geopolitics, because suddenly we need to be friends with places that have a different set of resources. Looking at economics more broadly, the biggest thing we got wrong in our predictions for 2023 was we were too pessimistic about Western economies. So we predicted recessions in the US, Europe and Britain as being very likely. And of course, the US economy has been unexpectedly strong in 2024, in 2023. Um, and the European economy was not as hard hit by the withdrawal of uh, Russian gas as expected because the winter was quite mild a year ago. Germany did have a recession. It was the most dependent on, on Russian gas, but um, the rest of the EU um, managed to avoid one. Um, so there's the, uh, old uh, the old economics joke that um, economists have successfully predicted nine of the last five recessions. Um, and uh, this is because, you know, economists are always predicting recessions. And it's all, if you predict one, there'll always be one eventually. Um, so the timing matters. Um, and we were wrong when we said that there would be these recessions in 2023. It looks like the US is going to avoid one altogether. That seems to be the most likely outcome for 2024, a soft landing. So actually getting rid of inflation or bringing it down a lot without causing a recession. Um, the EU and Britain, by contrast, are going to be bumping along at very close to zero growth and may, may go into a recession. But even if recessions are avoided, I think for everybody, we are looking at a, um, the world being in a in a period of lower growth with higher inflation and higher interest rates than we've been used to for a decade or more. Um, so this really is um, a, a very different regime. And the other place to keep a close eye on, of course, is China. It's unexpected reopening and overnight you know, abolition of its zero COVID policy has led to this uh, reopening of the economy, but it hasn't performed anything like as well as the government would like it to. And the risk there is of a, a, a sort of Japan scenario, Japanification. If you look at what happened in Japan in the 1990s, it went into this prolonged period of low growth and deflation. And that is a possibility for China. Uh, the economic remedy for this is well known. It's, uh, it's stimulus and it's sort of um, encouraging consumer spending. But um, China's policymakers seem to be sort of ideologically opposed to that. They're, they're happy to prop up the the uh, the property sector and things like that but the sort of direct stimulus to consumers that we saw from the us during the um during the pandemic for example um that's the kind of thing that uh, that china seems very very reluctant to do um so uh, we should all keep an eye on that because that's one of the big economic unknowns for for 2024 one of the things we talked about a lot this year has been ai and i think in 2024 artificial artificial intelligence will get real uh, in two ways in particular. I think companies that have been experimenting with the technology will start to deploy it more widely and we'll see more products that include AI, some of which will work unexpectedly well and some of which will fail in unexpected ways. And um, that brings us to the second way that I think um, AI is going to sort of get real, which is that regulators are going to actually start regulating it. And there's been a lot of talk about that this year, but we're going to get the first actual rules being applied. China started to do this. The EU is um, hoping to get its AI regulations, or at least the first stage of them, um, in place in the first half of, of next year. And I think quite a lot of the debate about um, the regulation of AI during 2023 has been a bit silly. There's been a lot of focus on existential risks and killer robots and all this sort of thing. Um, 
And I think actually uh, the bigger danger, I think I think all of the risk of that is massively overstated. And um, certainly there is no chance of killer robots showing up in 2024. But I think where there is a risk and where um, regulators should be focusing, and certainly the European regulations are focusing, is on the danger that existing AI systems, not some mythical future ones, but existing ones that are deployed now, um, can produce results that demonstrate bias or discrimination. And that's the sort of area where I think um, regulators should rightly be focusing. And I think um, a lot of the talk about the killer robots and the existential risks, to some extent, has been a distraction by um, some of the big tech companies, which would prefer to talk about um, possible risks in the future um, in order to hamper um, and to divert attention away from actual risks that exist now. But I think also part of it is a sort of dark hype. Um, I'm reminded of what was said about Robert Oppenheimer, somebody we've all become very familiar with this year because of the, the movie. But um, Oppenheimer in later life felt guilty for his uh, involvement in creation of nuclear weapons. And um, somebody else, uh, John von Neumann, said of him, uh, some people profess guilt to claim credit for the sin. Um, in other words, when Oppenheimer is saying, oh, you know, I apologize for creating this amazing world changing um, technology. Um, when, when people apologize for creating an awesomely powerful technology, they're not really apologizing, they're really boasting. And I think that's what's happening with a lot of the, uh, the tech bros here. By talking up the potential future risks of this technology, they're really talking up its awesome power, by extension, their own awesomeness. Um, but it's also a sort of dark hype. Um, as one AI scientist has referred to it. You know, Elon Musk is warning you of the danger of killer robots on the one hand, but he's trying to sell you a self-driving car on the other. Um, and, uh, you know, so talking up the power of this technology is uh, not necessarily um, a bad idea from his perspective. The other big concern that I think people have where the evidence, um, well, we'll, we'll, we'll see what evidence we get in 2024, but that, that people, are, you know, have, have always been worried about the impact of all of this on jobs. And the evidence so far is that uh, AI and robots are not taking jobs. Uh, OECD employment is at uh, absolutely unprecedented levels, multi-decade highs, and unemployment is at um, multi-decade lows. So if the robots are taking the jobs, I'm not quite sure whose jobs they're taking. Instead, what seems to be happening is that this technology can boost productivity. Uh, and this is most visible in computer programming, in software engineering. Um, and there was a lovely natural experiment earlier this year where Italy turned off, it banned, it blocked ChatGPT for a week. And during that week, the productivity of Italian programmers measured by the amount of code they were checking into GitHub, which is an online code repository, fell by half. So I think a lot of coders are using ChatGPT or other similar products um, to, to get a, an unexpected performance boost. I'm personally doing that myself, uh, and I know other people who are. And um, I think it's you know an extraordinary uh, invisible productivity boost, and I'm going to be looking for this coming through in the productivity figures for entire economies in 2024. I think it's um, I think it's possible we'll start to be able to see that um, at a at a larger scale. But I've I've heard so many examples of this, and it's particularly what's interesting about this is that um, both for people who work in call centers, for for programmers, and for consultants, when they've done studies on the productivity. Um, impact of these uh, of, of these technologies. What they found is that the use of AI assistance boosts the performance of the middling performers, the sort of mediocre programmers like me. Um, it doesn't really help people who are the best in the in the field at the top 
of the distribution, but the people at the bottom and in the middle um, get a get a real boost. Um, so that's really interesting because uh, that suggests that AI is a technology that has the potential to reduce inequality rather than increase it. So again, that's you know, there's some very preliminary work on this, but the results are extremely intriguing and very provocative. So I will be looking closely for more evidence on that front in 2024. Finally, is there some thing that will bring everyone together in this increasingly fractious and, uh, and disorderly world? Um, well, there are some candidates in, in 2024. One is the Paris Olympics, um, which is, you know, even even jaded cynics like me uh, often find it, you know, surprisingly uh, moving to see, you know, all the athletes in a particular uh, in a particular field uh, competing from around the world to see who's best. However, I think as with previous Olympics, uh, we are likely to see a lot of political arguments about how and whether athletes from Russia and Belarus should be allowed to compete and under what sort of flag and all the rest of it. So I'm afraid that's already turning into a political football. Um, what about the return to the moon? So um, there's going to be, as due to be a, an American mission to the moon in November of 2024. It may, may get pushed into 2025, but, um, but so far it's scheduled for November 2024. Um, it wouldn't be uh, landing on the moon, it would just be going around the back of the moon and then, and then coming back again to, to test out all of the, the spacecraft and so on. Um, and this would be the mission involving the first black man, the first woman and the first non-American to leave Earth orbit. So surely that would again be a you know cause for celebration. But I think once again, this is very likely to be politicized because here we are in another Cold War and we've got another American um, you know, space program. And, uh, and as in the first Cold War, um, the space program was very much a reminder, a demonstration by America of its technological superiority. And I think many people will be reading uh, this moonshot as um, in a very similar light. So unfortunately, I'm, I'm not persuaded that that's going to lead to a outburst of global unity either. Um, the other area that some of my colleagues at The Economist are very keen on is cricket. Um, and uh, the the men's 2020 World Cup uh, for cricket is coming to the US in 2023. It's going to be in 2024. It's going to be jointly hosted by the West Indies um, and the US. And uh, so cricket buffs are hoping that this will be the point at which America catches the cricketing bug. Um, but I think they could be on a bit of a sticky wicket. I think they could be caught out. And I fear that anyone looking for a moment of global unity in 2024 is likely to be stumped, as the cricketers say. So you can read more about all of these trends on our website um, at, this, um, at this address, in our app if you're a subscriber, in the various print editions of The World Ahead. And I wish you all the very best of luck in navigating the ups and downs of the coming year. Thanks very much for listening and let's do some Q&A. Tom, thanks so much. It's always such a fun time to listen to your presentation. Before we take some of the Q&A, I have to do a shout out for a young man who turned 14 in September. His name is Beckett Potter, and he asked his parents, uh, they said, what do you want for your birthday? And of course, he said, I'd like a subscription to The Economist. So I want to give, uh, give Beckett the opportunity to ask the first question. So here it is. Uh, what are your thoughts on the new advancements in nuclear fusion this year and whether it will affect the future of clean energy, especially in Europe, where the shift to renewables has been faster than in the United States? Yeah, it's interesting how much interest there suddenly is in fusion. So fusion has always been the 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 technology of the of the of the future. It's always been 50 years away forever. Um, 
And uh, but now we've got a lot. What's really interesting is we've got a lot of uh, startups in this field and we've got a lot of venture capital money going into this. And that's always a sign that, you know, something might be about to happen. So I'm more optimistic than I was. But I think we need to um, there's a sort of moral hazard here. We can't say, well, we, we can go a bit more slowly on on uh, decarbonizing everything else because the fusion, if, the, if fusion works, that'll that'll save us. Uh, we can't assume it's going to work. Uh, so we still have to push ahead with decarbonizing our electricity grids in, in other ways, lots and lots of solar and um, and wind. And, you know, Germany was obviously wrong to turn off its nuclear power stations. That was dumb. They shouldn't have done that. We need more nuclear fission as well. And so we're seeing something of a, of a renaissance there. Um, but yes, obviously, I would love it if fusion came along and, um, and made uh, energy you know, limitless and free. Um, to be honest, though, at the rate at which solar is falling in price, we are going to have you know very, very cheap solar energy all over the place. Um, and we're going to need to massively overbuild solar um, and uh, and solar and wind. You have to you have to overbuild both of them so that you can account for cloudy days and, and uh, days when it's not windy. And that means that when you have that excess capacity, you can use it to do things like make hydrogen and then use that in industrial processes and so on. So we need to be doing more of all of that. Um, I, I, I share his optimism that um, that fusion will will come through, but um, we can't rely on it. So we have to assume the worst. And then if we're pleasantly surprised that it starts working, that would be that would be great. But I suppose more generally, I am I am in the camp of people who thinks that this the way this problem gets solved is through technological innovation going faster than expected, because the political process to fix climate change is definitely going slowly, um, more slowly than expected and, and more slowly than it needs to to fix the problem. So I think it's more likely that the technologists save us than the politicians. Um, but again, we can't we can't bank on it. So we all have to do what we can. So Becca just pointed out to me in a text that the demographic age of the economist reader is actually lower because he just turned 12. So there we go. <laughs> ah, brilliant. Even better. That's what we want. That's what we want. So as always, we get quite this question and it comes this year from Paula Margolis. Tell us about what you got right and wrong in, in 2023. Right. So the other piece I have to write every year, apart from my letter summarizing what's coming up in you know, the top 10, is I also have to write a piece called How We Did and What We Got Right and Wrong. So the main thing we got wrong was, as I said, the um, the economic stuff um, about uh, Western economies, which turned out to be more resilient than we expected. Other things we got wrong, we didn't see um, uh, we didn't see Hamas's attacks coming. Um, you know, everyone was taken by surprise by that. We did actually write about the state of the um, of the Abraham Accords, and we said that um, Saudi Arabia looked like it was you know next in the queue, but that this was contingent on everybody continuing to turn a blind blind eye to the plight of the Palestinians, and that is exactly what Hamas was objecting to, um, which is that uh, essentially everyone was was saying if we if we ignore what's happening in the Palestinian territories, maybe it will all just go away. Um, so so we I, I I sort of give us half a point on on that one. Other things that that um that you know other things we we generally uh, the election outcomes and things we got right. I mean we wanted um, Erdogan to lose in Turkey and we wanted Peter Obi to win. In, uh, in Nigeria, and neither of those things happened, um, which is what we predicted, but not what we wanted. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, so I think we did, I think we did reasonably okay. Um, we said that the war in Ukraine would probably be a grinding stalemate. Uh, we said that um, the, uh, US politics would probably uh, settle into a Biden-Trump rematch, and, and those things happened. So I think the big one that we got it wrong on was the economy. So what about this um, super forecast? And that's where you draw on good judgment, this forecasting firm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a very interesting view of what may happen in the U.S. presidential election. 
Um, well, they've they've just um, uh, yeah, the one in three chance comes from them. And I, I graded their forecast for last year and they got um, basically eight out of eight um, last year. So they're, they're pretty good on this. Yeah, they think it's most likely um, that uh, assuming it's Biden, they, they're saying it's most likely that the Democratic um, nominee wins next year. But it's but it's very close. So they have a they have basically a two to one chance um, there. And I think their most recent forecasts are more like 55 to 45. Um, so it's you know it's closer to a coin toss, um, but generally you know, they they are they are very good, um, and we're we're very happy to have an association with them. Um, so who are they to do? So they are um, essentially uh, a chap called Philip Tetlock at um, University of Pennsylvania came up with a a method, uh, the super forecasting method. It's based on an older method invented in the 1950s by the Rand Corporation called Delphi, um, and uh, he sort of refined it and added a a bunch of sort of modern uh, improvements to it. Um, and the intelligence community in America held a competition about 10 years ago uh, to see who was the best at geopolitical forecasting. And they had uh, teams from different universities, from think tanks, um, from consultancies, and they had the super forecasters. And the super forecasters won by a huge margin. And so everyone thought, well, it must might have been a fluke. So they did it again the next year. And the super forecasters won again by a huge margin. So they stopped having the competition and um, the super forecasters now are you know, partly funded, I think, by uh, people like the US State Department and, uh, and so on. Mm. So they are they are the people who have shown that their approach, which is to, to it's very interesting because they think that um, forecasting can be taught and they think there are some people who are uh, sort of sort of good at it. What's interesting is the consistent finding is that uh, that experts in a given field are not the people you should ask, because when someone devotes their entire life to a specific industry or topic or something like that, they tend to overestimate how big the impact of that um, that field will be, uh, whether positively or negatively. And so they they tend to overstate things. And you can see this very, very clearly in the, um, the, the results. What you want a generalist who can pick things up quickly, uh, assess information impartially and are aware of their own cognitive biases. And you can learn to become more aware of your cognitive biases. And that's what the super forecasters are. They're people from all walks of life. Journalists turn out to have quite a similar skill set. Um, so you, you essentially want generalists who can learn quickly. Um, and are sort of good at assessing the plausibility of evidence. But that's that's who the super forecasters are. Uh, and we're very pleased to have an association with them and have done for many years. Well, since we're so interested, I think most of the people on this call, let me just read what they said. What will be the result of the United States presidential election 2024? Democratic nominee wins the electoral and popular vote, 63%, they said. Wins the electoral vote, but not the popular vote, 2%. Looking at the Republican nominee, wins the electoral and popular votes 10%, wins the electoral vote, but not the popular vote 25%. So very, very well, that's, a that's just a reflection of the strangeness. Of, I mean, this is part of the reason why America is classified as a flawed democracy, because mm. the um, because the electoral college system, which, you know, we all know why it's there for historical reasons. But what mm. it means is that Republicans tend to win when when they win, they tend to win in the electoral college, but they lose the popular vote. Um, and when Democrats win, they tend to win in, you know, they win the popular vote and they win in the Electoral College. So um, so that's the, uh, you know, the, the chances of a Democrat um, uh, winning the popular vote, but not not winning in the it, it's just to do with, you know, the way that uh, the way that the, the uh, Electoral College uh, essentially is a bias towards rural constituencies. So so that's why you get. But the main thing is, if you add up the, um, you know, 
overall chances of, of uh, Democrats winning versus the overall chances of Republicans winning, you basically get uh, 66, 33. So that's why we, we, that's why we say it's a one in three. And I, as I say, I think it's narrowed to sort of 55, 45 since, since we went to press. Okay, so here's a fun question from Greg Gosick. If The Economist had a person of the year, um, who would you highlight as being the most significant individual of 2023? Would it be Taylor Swift? I like Ooh, Time Magazine. Yes. No, exactly. Very good. Obviously, she's had she's had a great year. Um, that's a very good question. And I'm surprised no one has asked me that yet. Um, but they haven't. So I haven't got a I haven't got an answer. Who's the, who's an obvious person? Yeah, I don't. Well, I'll let I, you think I, about it for a minute. We'll come back okay. to it. Here's a question from Ray Termini in Dallas. Considering the low ratings of Biden and the continued support of President Trump, could the U.S. 2024 election really be based more on voter dissatisfaction as in 2016 rather than personalities as in 2020 uh yes i think that's very plausible and i think you know actually either of them could uh we you know could drop out for for health reasons or or, or whatever and i think if that happened um you know if donald trump was uh had to had to drop out either for health reasons or for legal reasons uh that would i think you know give the the democrats the opportunity to parachute in um, a younger candidate and i think if you look at the polls both supporters of both parties would like somebody else right um the only people who want this rematch are, are the, the two guys themselves as far as i can tell um and so so i think and it really is it's extraordinary look at this from outside the us what a gerontocracy you have you have such incredibly old people um and it's why is that again it's part of the reason why america is a flawed democracy is because you have gerrymandering so you have people who cannot lose their seats and so they are in power forever um and the only possible way they can lose is if somebody more extreme from their own party primaries them um but essentially they have you know a, a perfectly I mean, someone like matt gates he's in a he's in a perfectly safe seat right so so of course he's crazy and just does i mean what are the consequences if him, him being crazy there aren't any um and uh, and so the rest of the world sort of looks at this and says why do you let the politicians draw the boundaries of their own electoral districts this is crazy and you know california has has stepped back from this and introduced a nonpartisan electoral commission and so on but this is just not how it works in most of the world well it is it's how it works in you know places where elections get rigged all the time but America is sort of sliding towards all of this electoral dis well it's got electoral dysfunction um but in large part because of the uh, the mechanics of its electoral system and um and that's so one me, of the things that so let me ask you this do you do, do you see a path for no labels or a third party candidate I, I i i'm not sure what a path is i don't see a path for them winning i see a path for a, um for a third party candidate who could very easily uh, affect the election either way depending on who they take votes away from um, and, you know, various people are talked about uh, here. Um, uh, so, you know, Joe Manchin and, and uh, Liz Cheney and so on. And I, uh, it, opinion varies on exactly who would who would win or lose. Um, RFK, you know, it looks like actually he would take more votes, votes away from uh, from Trump. So uh, Republicans seem to be they've talked him up and, you know, they, they, they wanted him to be on all the TV shows. And now they're like, no, no, stop talking about him. Uh, uh, and so and you can see why. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we've seen this in so many elections, right, with Jill Stein, and, you know, um, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, Perot, where, of course, years yeah, ago. Yeah, absolutely. So 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 I think there could be a third party candidate and it could it could affect things either, either way. And this is just, just all what makes 2024 so unpredictable. And um, the other interesting indicator I heard from from somebody um, recently uh, was that apparently American uh, property insurers are 
um, they are increasingly reluctant to provide coverage for buildings um, for damage caused by riots and public disorder. Um, and so mm. that suggests that insurance companies think there is a, a, a growing chance of widespread um, social disorder and, uh, and public disorder. Um, and I'm not surprised because that's, that's what I would expect as well. Trump doesn't win. Um, if, if he wins outright, then, then you know, then maybe there won't there won't be well no there'd probably be there'd probably be protests in the other direction then but he, he but if he doesn't win then um he's going to you know try all his all his tricks and things again um and so i think uh what worries me personally about this is that i'm going to have to go to press sometime in uh, the beginning of november and i suspect we won't know what the result of the election is because i think we're going to have chaos for the last you know we're going to have weeks of chaos at the end of, of 2024 so i hope well, that's one prediction where i'm completely wrong well, my friend, you're often right on your forecast. I hope on this one you're you're not. Um, we have two or three questions from different uh, members of our audience asking you to elaborate more on what it means about the United States being more active in a multipolar world, or are we in a unipolar world, and what does it mean going forward? And I, I think I'd like you to weave into that a little bit more about how the United States foreign policy could change under a Trump administration. Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, uh, it looks like um, the Republicans are taking a sort of isolationist turn. Um, and uh, we've seen this before in U.S. history, of course, between the First and Second World Wars. But um, but that would be the big change that um, that Trump seems not to be um, not to be interested in. I mean, famously, when he was president, he asked whether Japan and South Korea were paying America um, for protection as um, as you know, it, its security guarantor in the Pacific, and he couldn't understand why they literally weren't paying cash to America, um, like a you know mob bosses, <laughs> um, extorting people to to not go and smash up their their shop. So um, so he couldn't understand. So he's very transactional about this, and I think um, it's really the big question is what he would do on Taiwan because um, Republicans talk about being being tough on China. It's not quite sure what they mean that about that but but also you know you can imagine trump saying well why should we put american lives on the line to defend some tiddly widdly little island on the other side of the world that you know i've never heard of um and you can totally imagine him him doing that um so it's really really unpredictable he could go either way on that on israel it's hard to imagine him pushing any pressure on israel um uh he'd probably just give them a you know carte blanche to do whatever they like so um so uh and then clearly he wants to pull the plug on Ukraine because he's got a very long beef with Zelensky um, and the Republicans do generally because they blame uh, Zelensky and the perfect phone call for, for the, the first impeachment. So, um, so yeah, you can you can imagine America turning very much inward and that causing um, you know, problems for the rest of the world because you've suddenly got the withdrawal of um, the, the security guarantees and this and this big, important ally. So that's that, that's I think is um and that that's then an opportunity for um you know for for other um powers like iran and china and russia to do whatever they want and and uh, you know they're relishing the prospect frankly what do you think about the BRICS? and we have just a, a minute left but i found it interesting and was not, not remembering or aware that the next meeting is going to be next october in russia um i know they're also going to add new members to the BRICS next year uh, the thing about the BRICS is they're they they're a weird club because the only thing they have in common is that they dislike the um, rules based international order sort of as imposed after the Second World War. 
Um, so they agree on that, but they disagree on almost everything else. Some of them are authoritarian, some of them are democracies. Uh, they can't agree on UN reform. They can't, I mean, they can't agree on anything. And they tried to have an investment fund. They tried to have a sort of, you know, equivalent of an Asian development bank. Uh, and it all went nowhere. So the problem is, this is what happened in the French Revolution. Everyone could agree with what they didn't want. They didn't want the king. And once they got rid of the king, they couldn't agree on what they wanted. And the result was chaos. So the thing about the BRICS is that they're essentially bound together by a single grievance. Um, and that's a recipe for not really having any influence and not being able to get anything done. Uh, whereas, you know, the G7 are bound together, yes, by the fact that they're rich countries, but they're all rich liberal democracies that essentially want to, want to take the world in the same direction. And you can't say the same for the BRICS. So um, so that's uh, accordingly, you know, the BRICS is getting bigger and the, the bigger it gets. I think, you know, that doesn't mean it's going to get any more relevant. It's very, very hard to see a sort of coherent set of policy demands coming from uh, a club with such diverse members. Well, as always, as you pointed out in the world ahead, there's going to be a lot for us to watch, a lot for us to read about in your wonderful Absolutely. newspaper. So as always, thanks, Tom, for being with us. And to all of you who are in our audience today, happy holidays, and we'll see you again soon.